Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of a number too high to count. Now comes the time when I introduce uh, our speaker. Usually I, uh, I speak about their great scholarship and I usually wax uh, exciting about all of their work. But I think probably our speaker today is someone who is well known uh, as just about anyone in the Civil War Roundtable movement. I first met this uh, rep uh, gentleman uh, in 1977, sitting in the back of a room uh, in, a, in a very cramped meeting room, as I recall, uh, in Manassas at the Holiday Inn, which is directly across the street from the battlefield, and I never could understand why we never stayed at that one when we were on tour. But, uh, and then we then went on to have such wonderful uh, moments at that first ever Civil War Roundtable Congress of getting to sit at the table with the Jackson Civil War Roundtable, watching Thomas Connolly savagely and trying desperately to be about three feet tall, hearing the first uh, serious talk uh, that I had ever heard uh, from Verlin Sprague. Uh, Verlin was, was by far, uh, those of you who knew him, uh, a pixie, but at that time, he took a very difficult position for Civil War people. He argued on the Manassas battlefield that the site, which is just recently again, there has been such a fuss, uh, the Lee headquarters site and the fourth, the Longstreet Corps, should be developed and that they were not historically significant because it was felt at that time that with the argument for historic preservation that there ought to be someone to speak for the other side and Verlin was one of those rare, brave souls who could not only would agree to do that in the interest of honesty, but uh, who would also did a good job at it. So now that I've given you all of these wonderful personal reminiscences, I uh, would like to introduce to you simply the guiding force behind the Civil War Roundtable Associates, the Order of the Indian Wars, the Confederate Historical Institute, someone who is always affable, always congenial, believes in conservative politics, so I would have had him come here, although I did have to promise to fly him out on a plane with two right wings. I would like to introduce to you Jerry Russell. It was 19, I'll start off by correcting the president, 1975. Is this thing working? I'm not necessarily noted for needing uh, a microphone, but sometimes it's better. Did everybody get a map of Pea Ridge Bound? Okay. I'm delighted to be here. I feel like the young lawyer who's practicing for the first time before the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, this, as you well know, is the Civil War Roundtable. And that is not an unmeaningful thing to those of us in the rest of the country. 
If it hadn't been for Mr. Newman and some of his colleagues almost 50 years ago, then all of us might not even be here tonight. And it is certainly a great honor for me to be here. Uh, Bill and I talked about this some time ago and decided that a March program on Pea Ridge, which was just two or three days ago, would be appropriate. But I'm, I just do want to let you know how pleased I am. I have a, a particular affection for this roundtable, besides the fact that it's the roundtable, in that 20 years ago this May, Marshall, I joined your group in Memphis, Tennessee, and went on the Shiloh tour in May of 1969. Alice Ann and I had been married a little over a year. We had gone to Shiloh on our honeymoon in February of 68. On Valentine's Day of 1968, we got married and then went to Shiloh on our honeymoon. <laughs> the following year, the round table was having a tour to Shiloh, so we went on that and met, uh, had the privilege of meeting Gary Warshaw and, and just many of you then. Uh, I was with you a couple of years ago at Pea Ridge in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, home of America's richest man, you know, Sam Walton, and enjoyed, uh, I was there for most of that tour and enjoyed being with you again. Uh, this is a group that really has fun in the Civil War. Uh, I have spoken to roundtables all over the country, and there are a few that are kind of stuffy about them, kind of, I don't know, kind of full of themselves, frankly, uh, and, and don't have very formal meetings, very dignified meetings. I waved my red coat at them, you know. <laughs> this is a Razorback red coat. It's a St. Louis Cardinal red coat. <laughs> Tomorrow, when I go to Madison to spend the rest of the weekend with my daughter, who's a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, it will be a badger <laughs> red coat. Before I get into my official remarks, I guess you might say, about Pea Ridge, we had a speaker at our roundtable in Little Rock three or four weeks ago, a Dr. William Shea of the University of Arkansas at Monticello, who was Dr. Earl Heff of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville has just completed a manuscript on the Pea Ridge campaign. And he calls the Pea Ridge campaign the whole exercise that left Rolla, Missouri, went on down into Arkansas and eventually over to Helena on the Arkansas River. That's what he defines as the Pea Ridge campaign. And Bill Shea didn't talk about the battle. He did talk about some observations and some new things and so forth that he had gleaned during his research on the whole campaign. And, and I want to share just a few of them uh, with you before I talk about the battle itself. For one thing, Pea Ridge was only the third set piece battle in the Civil War. And, and obviously there have been so many more since then that that fact has been obscured. But a lot of things about Pea Ridge have been obscured by later history. Only First Bull Run, where two armies met and fought, and Wilson's Creek, where two armies met and fought, had been set-piece battles. Fort Donaldson had been a battle, but it was, it was kind of a battle that evolved and wasn't really a set-piece battle. So Pea Ridge was only the third really 
stylized, formalized battle in the Civil War. It was part of a much bigger campaign. Uh, Halleck had, in the winter and spring of 1862, sent Grant down into Tennessee, sent Polk down the river, and sent Sam Curtis west into southwestern Missouri. Pea Ridge was a winter campaign, which was unusual for the Civil War. During most of the winters during the war, the troops sat it out in camp. But Pea Ridge was a campaign, as pointed out on the, on the uh, questionnaire sheet, that was fought with snow on the ground. Uh, Van Dorn marched his troops north in a blinding snowstorm, and it was cold, and it was hard winter in the Ozarks, rugged, relatively high terrain. Uh, on the Eastern Front at that particular time, uh, all was quiet on the Potomac that night. I mean, that may have been when they wrote the song because very little was happening. During this campaign, the Federal Army advanced 200 miles, fought a battle, and then went another 300 miles, which was the longest and deepest penetration of the Confederacy until Sherman started on the Atlanta campaign. At the time, the Pea Ridge campaign was celebrated for its audacity, again, later being eclipsed by Sherman when he cut loose from Atlanta and marched to the sea. But astonishingly daring that early in the war, they went from Rolla to Springfield, Missouri, to Fayetteville, to Batesville, Searcy, Augusta, Clarendon, and all, over, all to Helena, 500 miles facing Confederate opposition the whole way. It began as an exercise to liberate the town of Springfield, Missouri. But when Price didn't defend Springfield, <coughs> the campaign developed. And in the early stages of the campaign, it involved what Bill Shea said was the closest, longest pursuit of one army by another during the war. Over 70 miles, five days of almost constant fighting, the Federal Army pursued the Confederate Army. It was on Christmas Day, 1861, that Major General Henry W. Halleck, commander of the Department of Missouri, appointed Brigadier General Samuel R. Curtis, an Iowan, a West Point graduate, and a veteran of the Mexican War, to be the new federal commander of the Southwestern District of Missouri. And on the next day, Curtis left St. Louis by way of the South Pacific Railroad for Rolla, Missouri, headquarters of his new command, to fulfill the Union objective at the time of driving the Confederates from the state of Missouri. This campaign, which would culminate in the Battle of Pea Ridge on March 7th and 8th, 1862, <coughs> became known as the Pea Ridge Campaign. It was for control of Missouri that the Battle of Wilson's Creek had been fought near Springfield on August 10th. 1861, and it was why federal forces were building up in southwest Missouri in the winter of 1861-62. <coughs> Missouri was important to both the North and the South. It was in this portion of Missouri that a true civil war was being waged with family against family and brother against brother. <coughs> the state remained legally in the Union, but Major General Sterling Price a very popular former state governor, a veteran of the Mexican War, and at this time commander of the Missouri State Guard, endeavored to control the state for the Confederacy. You may remember that the legislature had adjourned 
in Jefferson City and moved to Springfield, and the governor of Missouri, and established a Confederate government at that time. <clears throat> Not only was there concern for control of southwestern Missouri, both Union and Confederate forces were aiming for control of the city of St. Louis. For the Federal forces, St. Louis was a base for Western operations. For the Confederate forces, it would be a base for operations into the upper Mississippi and the Ohio River Valleys. Earl Van Dorn, you remember, in his address to his troops, <coughs> said, we will beat the people at Pea Ridge, or we will beat these men in battle, and then huzzah for St. Louis. The control of Missouri was one of the reasons the contending forces clashed at Pea Ridge in March of 1862. After arriving at Rolla, General Curtis began making preparations to carry out his mission. His predecessors, two less than memorable generals, whom we remember anyway, Major Generals John C. Fremont and David Hunter, had not achieved much success along this line. From Rolla, the Federal forces pushed southwestern along the Telegraph Road toward the Missouri-Arkansas line. As the Federals advanced in that direction, the Confederates, primarily Price's Missouri State Guards at that time, retreated along the same route. And on February 13, 1862, the Northern Army entered Springfield, Missouri, and took it without a battle. Springfield, you remember, had been captured after the Battle of Wilson's Creek previous August and had been held since that time. But upon learning of the approach of the Federal column, the Confederates evacuated the town. When one company of the 4th Iowa Regiment entered Springfield, they found no one to contest their entry. They proceeded to the courthouse where they raised the Union flag. They didn't stay long, though, because the main body of Curtis's troops left Springfield on the morning of February 14th. Let me digress just a moment to refer again to the questionnaire. At that point, there was a civilian teamster on the payroll of a civilian contractor in Springfield named James Butler Hickok. He was not a scout. He was a teamster. There is no record as to whether or not he went south with the column. Some of the teamsters went south with the column. Some of them stayed in Springfield. There's no record that Hickok went on south to Pea Ridge. There's no record that Hickok was at Pea Ridge. And if he was, he was there as a teamster. <clears throat> Another member of the column that was not at Pea Ridge because he stayed in Springfield <coughs> was a fellow named Sheridan. Captain Philip Sheridan was a quartermaster for Curtis's column and had done an excellent job but even then, early in the war, he was having a problem with his temper. When Curtis, some weeks later, wrote, send me some wagons, Sheridan replied, I'll send you some damn wagons if you'll send me some damn mules. For which General Curtis sent Captain Sheridan back to St. Louis to be court-martialed for insubordination, but as it happened, General Halleck liked young Phil Sheridan, and instead of court-martialing, he sent him on eastward to join the staff of General Grant. And there are many, many, many what-ifs in the Civil War, but this is an interesting what-if. Would Grant have found someone as able as Sheridan 
to be his right arm or his left arm if, Sheriff, if Sherman was his right arm? Would Grant have found somebody else to take Sheridan's place if, in fact, Sheridan had been court-martialed, his career ruined, etc.? And if he did, who would that person have been? By February 16th, Curtis's men, with the cavalry under Colonel Eugene A. Carr leading, had achieved the Union objective of driving the Confederates from Missouri. But the Confederates had not been defeated. Realizing this fact, hoping to score a major victory, Curtis ordered his men to pursue the Confederates into Arkansas. So the battle to save Missouri for the Union that should have been fought in Missouri was fought in Arkansas. A lot of these towns or crossroads places, uh, communities will be familiar to those of you who, weren't on, who were on the tour a year ago last May. Uh, to others, just try to bear with me until we get a little closer in, and then I can at least show you on the map. The first encounter with the Confederate rear guard was just across the state line at a place called Cross Hollow Timber on February 16th, Cross Hollow Timber being some three and a half miles north of Elkhorn Tavern, which is in the upper right-hand quadrant of your map, but it's on back off the map on north of Elkhorn Tavern. And on the next day, six miles south of there, a, a more serious clash occurred at a little town called, near a little town called Brightwater, at a place called Dunnigan's Farm. This was the first significant engagement of the campaign. The Federals lost 13 killed and 15 to 20 wounded. The Confederates lost was somewhat less, but it was the bloodiest day of the campaign so far. While the Confederates were retreating, Curtis was setting up a temporary headquarters near Little Sugar Creek and studying the area with the thought in mind that it would be a good site for a future battle. Down across the bottom of your map, you will see Little Sugar Creek, and you will see where Curtis set up his camp. I've always thought it was a shame that they didn't fight the battle there because the Battle of Little Sugar Creek has kind of a neater sound to it than Pea Ridge. I mean, you know. I, but while the Confederates were retreating, oh, upon the arrival of his first and second divisions, under Brigadier General Franz Siegel, and yes, this was his best battle of the war, Curtis had planned to advance to Cross Hollow, approximately 12 miles south of Little Sugar Creek, where he thought the Confederates would concentrate for battle. After two days in this Little Sugar Creek encampment, Curtis moved his force to Osage Springs, which is still a town there just south of the town of Bentonville, and then on to Cross Hollow. And on February 22nd, the Confederates were driven from their camp at Cross Hollow, but only after they had burned all of their winter quarters that they had built. Curtis stayed there from February 22nd until he returned to Little Sugar Creek on the night of March 5th through 6th. Right before the return to Little Sugar Creek, he heard the booming of a 40-gun salute coming from the Confederate camp south of him, and he knew that a major general had joined the Confederates. Um, on the questionnaire, it said Ms. Peters, and if she had been a Ms., then there wouldn't have been the problem that there was. <laughs> Her husband, the dentist, had this picky thing about fillings, and he wanted to be the one doing everything. 
By the time the Confederates evacuated Cross Hollow, Price's forces, again the Missouri State Guard, had joined ranks with the main body of Confederate troops, regular Confederate Army troops, under Brigadier General Ben McCulloch. <coughs> the combined Confederate forces then moved to deep in the Boston Mountains southwest of Fayetteville. Fayetteville, of course, is now the home of the University of Arkansas, fighting Razorbacks, who's going to win the Southwest Conference Tournament tomorrow and then go to the NCAA and beat everybody. I just, I just wanted to throw that in. Uh, Fayetteville changed hands about 17 times during the course of the Civil War. During the retreat, Price had urged on McCulloch a scorched earth policy, but this was one of many disagreements that the two had had dating back to the previous summer when they had been kind of in combined charge of the Confederate forces at Wilson's Creek. It seemed that much of the difficulty the Confederates experienced in dealing with the Federals in southwestern Missouri and northwestern Arkansas stemmed from the fact that there was virtually no cooperation between Price and McCulloch. <coughs> McCulloch, a regular officer of the Confederate Army, a commander of the Confederate forces in Arkansas, considered his rank of brigadier general superior to the rank of major general of the Missouri State Guard held by Price, commander of the guard. I guess kind of like a regular army man today would, would think that his commission was better than a National Guard officer. I, having not been an officer in either capacity, I don't really know, but apparently they get pretty picky about things like that. It was because of this lack of cooperation <coughs> that the Confederate government in Richmond finally became concerned enough to create a new district, the Trans-Mississippi District, and appoint a new commander. Jefferson Davis appointed an old family friend, fellow Mississippian, Major General Earl Van Dorn, a great nephew of Old Hickory, Andrew Jackson. Van Dorn, who had been a cavalry commander in the 2nd Cavalry, 2nd U.S. Cavalry before the war, was transferred to Virginia to this new district. Uh, there's another question on your questionnaire that may or may not have the right answer. He may not have been ill, and that's why he commanded from an ambulance. He may have been drunk. That's what the troops thought, anyway. <coughs> it was expected that the new commander would unite the forces of McCulloch, Price, and Brigadier General Albert Pike, commander of the pro-Confederate Indian forces from the Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma. <coughs> On March 3rd, 1862, General Van Dorn, traveling overland by horseback with one staff member, reached the Confederate headquarters on Cove Creek in the Boston Mountains and assumed active command of the Confederate forces, and that's when he gave that impassioned speech that ended huzzah for St. Louis. The new commander soon let it be known that he intended to wage an all-out offensive against the federal forces, therefore thereby driving them from Arkansas, enabling the Confederates to move to St. Louis, capture that city, get control of the entire state, and then who knows, march on Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> I, spoke, I spoke to the Cleveland Roundtable on the Battle of Pea Ridge one time, and, and Guy DiCarlo, who was their editor at that time, was somewhat of a wag, and he billed my talk as the man who saved Cleveland for the Union. <laughs> that Van Dorn, by losing this battle, had kept the Confederacy from capturing Cleveland. With that objective, Cleveland or whatever, in mind, he started moving his troops northward on March the 4th, and by the evening of March 5th, the Confederate soldiers, weary and exhausted from the forced march through a snowstorm in the Boston Mountains, 
had passed through Fayetteville, which had been occupied by Brigadier General Asboth's Federal Forces as late as February 23rd. While this Confederate movement was taking place, Curtis's troops were distributed in the following manner. Brigadier General Franz Siegel, a German immigrant of 1852, with the 1st and 2nd Divisions were near McKissick's Farm, four miles southwest of Bentonville. Colonel Jefferson C. Davis, the Yankee Jeff Davis from Indiana, with the 3rd Division, was on the bluffs above Little Sugar Creek, where you see Curtis's encampment. <coughs> and Colonel Carr, Colonel Carr of Illinois was with the 4th Division at Cross Hollow. Eugene Carr, for you trivia buffs, uh, went on to command the 5th Cavalry after the war, and in the Indian Wars period was in command of the 5th Cavalry at a place in, in Nebraska called Warbonnet Creek, where William B. Cody fought Yellowhand and took the first scalp of Custer. You've all heard about the Battle of Warbonnet Creek. Well, Eugene Carr, who served here at Pea Ridge, was one of many people who served at Pea Ridge who went on to other things. When Curtis learned of the Confederate movement, his forces were scattered from Little Sugar Creek to Cross Hollow, with detachments as far west as the Indian Territory and as far east as Huntsville, Arkansas. So they were all spread out over about a 50 or 60 mile front. So on March 5th, he ordered a concentration where the Telegraph Road crossed Little Sugar Creek. And you can see that it's approximately in the middle of the map. At the very bottom, you see the Telegraph Road going to the right and intersecting Little Sugar Creek. Curtis arrived at that location at 2 a.m. on the morning of March 6th. Shortly after arriving, he ordered Colonels Davis and Carr to close the Telegraph Road with felled timbers south of Little Sugar Creek and to prepare earthworks on the bluffs on the north side of Little Sugar Creek. These earthworks would command an approach from the south by way of the Telegraph Road and an approach from the southwest by way of Little Sugar Creek Valley. So you can pretty well see where the Union camp is on the map. The federal commander had reason to believe that the Confederates would advance along the Telegraph Road, and if so, they'd have to cross Little Sugar Creek in the vicinity of his entrenchments. There was no doubt in Curtis's mind that his cannon and troops situated on the high bluffs could wipe out any force Van Dorn might move along the Telegraph Road or up the valley. While Curtis was speculating as to the route Van Dorn would be using, the southern commander was moving his army by way of Bentonville some 40 miles southwest of Curtis's position, completely off your map to the left and down. At about 10 o'clock on March 6th, the day Curtis arrived here at the Little Sugar Creek entrenchments, Siegel, then at Bentonville, oh, 15 miles away, learned that the Confederates were only a few miles south of town. Acting on orders from Curtis, the concentration orders from Curtis, he had sent the 1st and 2nd Divisions commanded by Colonel Peter J. Osterhaus and Brigadier General Alexander Asboth, respectively, to join Curtis's other forces at Little Sugar Creek, and he therefore faced the Confederate advance with only about 600 men to offer resistance. In this particular instance, I'll have to admit that Siegel had no choice but to retreat, and he left the town to be occupied by the Confederates. After several minor skirmishes in which the Federal managed to hold their own. A more serious engagement seemed to be developing. However, before the large 
Confederate force could attack the rear of Siegel. Reinforcements under Osterhaus and Asboth had come to his assistance. Well screened by additional artillery and troops, Siegel was able to continue his march to Curtis's base without another encounter with the Confederates. And by nightfall of March 6, Van Dorn and most of his troops had arrived at a place called Camp Stevens, a well-established Confederate camp located on Little Sugar Creek five miles west of where Curtis was entrenched, um, still off the map a little bit. The Confederate camp was situated near the junction of a road which ran along Little Sugar Creek and connected with the Telegraph Road near Curtis's position and the Bentonville-Keatsville Road, otherwise known as the Bentonville Detour, which is this, this road on the left of, your, of the main map that's going all the way across the left-hand edge of the boundary of the battlefield. That's the Bentonville Detour. The road ran northeasterly from Camp Stevens and for the most part paralleled the Telegraph Road. The two roads joined in Cross Timber Hollow, three miles north of Elkhorn Tavern in the direct rear of Curtis's position. Van Dorn realized the futility of a frontal attack against Curtis's works, and he called his commanders into conference to help determine a strategy. The former Texas Ranger, Ben McCulloch, who had a detailed knowledge of the area, informed his commanding general that the Federal rear could be reached by making an eight-mile march along that Bentonville detour around behind Elkhorn Tavern to the Telegraph Road. Then a Confederate battle plan began to take shape. First, Van Dorn would have his men pitch their tents and build campfires at Camp Stevens as if they intended to stay the night of March 6th and 7th, hoping that this was de would deceive General Curtis. Later in the evening, he would have his forces move around the Federal right this is your left as you're looking at the map. The Federals were facing south at this point. Move around the Federal right so as to attack from the rear. A successful attack from the rear would sever Curtis's line of communication and supply, the Telegraph Road. With the Confederates squarely across the road, it would be impossible for Curtis to receive reinforcements or to retreat in the event of defeat. <clears throat> About 8 o'clock on the evening of March 6th, Van Dorn began his flanking attack with General Price's Missourians leading. Van Dorn had hoped to reach the point in the Federal rear north of Elkhorn Tavern before daylight, but he soon realized that it would be several hours later before his troops could get to that point. His men were in no condition for fast marching. They complained that their commander was not very considerate. Um, they, some wrote that he was riding on horseback while he walked. Others wrote that he was riding in an ambulance while, while they walked. Three days of hard marching with very little to eat. Some of the men without shoes had exhausted the Confederate soldiers. The march around the Federals was slowed further when the Confederates had to remove timbers which Colonel Grenville Dodge's men had felled across the road during the early part of the evening. Grenville Dodge is another name that occurs over again in American history after the Civil War in the Indians' Wars. While Van Dorn's advanced troops were being confronted with the felled trees to slow their march, the remainder of his army was south of Little Sugar Creek with no way to cross its icy waters. <clears throat> after considerable delay, two poles were secured and laid side by side to facilitate a crossing, but it was almost daylight before the last of Van Dorn's men had crossed the stream. 
By 8 a.m. on March the 7th, the main portion of Price's troops had reached the junction of the Bentonville detour in the Telegraph Road, three and a half miles north of Elkhorn Tavern. It was about that time that Van Dorn changed his plan slightly and decided on a two-pronged attack against Curtis. Price's Missouri troops, who were already past what's described here as Big Mountain, would attack south along the Telegraph Road, attacking the rear of Curtis's left, and McCulloch's troop, troops who had not made it around Big Mountain yet, instead of staying on the Bentonville detour and going behind Big Mountain, would just cut across in front of Big Mountain and attack Curtis's troops in that area. McCulloch's troops consisted of the infantry brigade under the Louisianian Colonel Lewis Hebert, a cavalry brigade under the Arkansan Brigadier General James McIntosh, three regiments of Indians under the Massachusetts Native Brigadier General Albert Pike, only two of those regiments made it into battle, and five artillery battles, uh, batteries, and they were ordered to move south, skirting the edge of Big Mountain, the 150-foot ridge extending two and a half miles west from Elkhorn Tavern and attack the federal right. Uh, Pea Ridge is actually the, the elevation from the creek, Little Sugar Creek, the bluffs over Little Sugar Creek, those of you who have been there, the highland going all the way back. And the eminence that we all call Pea Ridge is really Big Mountain. This is something else that I picked up from Dr. Shea that Pea Ridge is the larger land mass, and Big Mountain is really the, I guess this could have been called the Battle of Big Mountain. Van Dorn thought that simultaneous attacks on the Confederate, on the Federal, right and left, closing toward the center, really a pincher movement, a classic military movement, would result in the inevitable defeat of Curtis. The Southern commander's superior number, unusual, 16,200, as opposed to Curtis's 10,500, would seem to have justified Van Dorn's optimism. Rarely did the Confederates outnumber the Federals as at Pea Ridge. Van Dorn was handicapped in that it was difficult for him to coordinate the operations of McCulloch's troops north of the hamlet of Leetown and Price's troops around the tavern. I think this was a basic intrinsic failing of Van Dorn as a commander. He was the typical cavalry troop commander who had little comprehension of the scope of activities outside of his immediate control. He was just unable to exercise control outside of his immediate area. The Confederate right was at least eight miles from its left by way of the Bentonville detour. On the other hand, General Curtis had easy access to both wings of his force, and for a group as knowledgeable as this one, I can just point out that the Federals had the interior lines. That Van Dorn had moved around Curtis's right and was moving toward the Telegraph Road was first reported to the Federals around 5 a.m. on March 7th. By 6 a.m., there was no doubt in the Federals' minds that they were being attacked from the rear by a large force. Van Dorn's move was first made known to the Federals through Private Thomas Welch of the 3rd Illinois Cavalry Regiment. 
This Illinois private who was on guard duty near the Bentonville detour was captured around 3 a.m. by Colonel J.T. Turnell's mounted troops, the head of Price's advance. But while being taken to the rear of the Confederate line, <coughs> Welch escaped and reported the Confederate move to his commander, Major Eli Weston, who had a Union outpost north of Elkhorn Tavern. Weston, who was the provost marshal for Curtis's army, was using Elkhorn Tavern as his headquarters. He soon realized that he could not hold back the Confederates, and he sent Captain Barber Lewis to inform Curtis, who at that time had his tent in the vicinity of Pratt's store down toward Little Sugar Creek. Before Lewis informed <coughs> Curtis of the Confederate move, he had learned of it through the reports of two of General Siegel's scouts, a Mr. Pope and a Mr. Brown. Perhaps one of them was Wild Bill Hickok under an alias, but all we know is Pope and Brown. And Curtis had called his division commanders into conference. With the Confederates having made the unexpected move around his right, Curtis had to formulate a new battle plan. He must decide quickly how to meet the attack from the north. The Federal commander's immediate action involved having his troops do an about-face. And where they had been facing south, you just turn them around, now they're facing north. Early in the conference, <coughs> Curtis decided to send Colonel Osterhouse of General Siegel's command with elements of the 3rd Iowa Cavalry, the 1st, 4th, and 5th Missouri Cavalry Regiments, and two artillery batteries to strike what was thought to be the center of Van Dorn's line. One of the confusions of this battle over and above the confusion of most battles is that there were Missouri units on both sides. And it really gets confusing trying to keep up with which Missouri unit you're talking about. While Curtis was still in conference, he received word that Weston's troops north of the tavern had been attacked and that a large number of Confederates were moving on the Telegraph Road. With it apparent that immediate action must be taken, Curtis broke up the conference and ordered Colonel Carr, now commanding the Federal right, your right now on the map, to send a brigade to Weston's aid. When Colonel Dodge got to the vicinity of the tavern with his brigade, he called the situation grave. Price had already started an enveloping movement northeast of the tavern and was moving toward the Huntsville Road, the road that runs eastward from the tavern. By the time Dodge got there, Major Weston's force, which had moved against the oncoming Confederates, had been pushed back considerably by Confederate cavalry. They had negotiated a movement to the left of the tanner in the vicinity of the tannery and were moving along with his immediate superior, Price, toward the Huntsville Road. With a careful placement of troops, in Dodge's brigade, Colonel Carr was able to push the Confederates back temporarily to Williams Hollow, through which they had advanced. Carr realized, however, that the Confederates were too numerous for him to hold off very long, and he sent for Colonel William Vandiver, commanding one of the brigades in his division, to come to his support. While Vandiver was moving his troops up the Telegraph Road, a Colonel Henry Little of Price's command, who had launched his thrust up Cross Timber Hollow, was approaching the neighborhood of the tavern which was being used as Carr's headquarters in a federal hospital. With fierce determination, the Federals moved forward and in desperate hand-to-hand -hand engagement forced the Confederates to fall back. I neglected to mention the last casualty of Elkhorn Tavern before I started this, but it kind of brings to mind, the bloodshed at Elkhorn Tavern kind of brings to mind Marshal Krolik's misadventure on the tour two years ago. Vanderbilt ultimately had to fall back because of Little's superior, superior number and artillery fire. At the same time, 
Colonel Dodge was trying desperately to hold out against Price on the Federal right about a half mile east of the tavern. While Little was moving against the Federal center and Price was pushing hard against the Federal right, Brigadier General William Y. Slack's troops were driving the Federals from the ridge. Shortly after Slack's brigade started crossing Big Mountain, it was ambushed by a Federal combat patrol, causing considerable confusion in the Confederate ranks. <coughs> the confusion soon ended, however, and the Yankees were driven from their advanced position near the crest of this ridge. Prior to this clash, the Federals had attempted to place one of their six-pounder guns on the ridge west of the tavern, and during the struggle, the gun and several Federals were captured. Although the Confederates had forced the Yankees from the ridge, they had suffered a great loss. One of the Brigadier Generals, William Y. Slack from Missouri, received a mortal wound in the hip, necessitating that he be removed from the field and that Colonel Thomas H. Rosser assume command of the brigade. But Slack, your questionnaire to the contrary, was not killed at Pea Ridge. He was mortally wounded at Pea Ridge. He died several days later, so you really can't count that as a kill. You can count, you can count McIntosh and McCullough, but you really can't count Slack as a kill. Okay. The final charge of the Confederates came about <coughs> 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Price, with three divisions of the Missouri State Guard, forced Colonel Dodge to relinquish his position astride the Huntsville Road. Colonel Little drove Vandiver from the tavern, and Colonel Rosser, now in command of Slack's brigade, drove the Federals from Pea Ridge. Rosser, you may remember, will reappear in Civil War history in a clash with a fellow named Custer over in Virginia later in the war. By the time the Federals were forced to retreat, General Asboth had arrived with reinforcements, but the situation was so bad that the additional troops could not turn the tide. The Confederate advance, however, was checked by the seven guns brought up by Asboth, while the seven guns, four on the left and three on the right of the telegraph road, prevented further Confederate advance. They facilitated the retreat of the Confederates. By nightfall, Van Dorn ordered his men to cease their attacks. The day had brought success to the Confederate left. Van Dorn had established his headquarters at Elkhorn Tavern, and a hospital had been set up in part of the building. The Confederate victory in the Elkhorn Tavern area could not be disputed, which may be why down south we call this the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern, because we won that one. <laughs> it was the next day that got us in trouble. <clears throat> but what had been happening over on the Confederate right, the Union left, the left side of your map. It's been noted that when General Curtis learned of Van Dorn's movement by way of the Bentonville detour, he sent a task force under Colonel Osterhaus to strike Van Dorn's center. Little did Curtis realize that Van Dorn was staging a two-pronged attack, that a large body of troops would be attacking both his new left and right. By 9.30 a.m., Osterhaus' force, led by Colonel Cyrus Bussey, had left the encampment and was moving into an open field north and west of the hamlet of Leetown, and you should be able to see Leetown on your map about the center of, near the center of the map. Soon the Federals noticed a large body of Confederates moving on the Bentonville detour about two miles to the north, and as the Confederates were passing the western ed edge of Big Mountain, three guns of the 1st Missouri Flying Battery Union opened fire on them. Brigadier General Ben McCulloch, overall commander of the right wing of the Confederate forces, ordered Brigadier General James M. McIntosh to make a charge with his cavalry. While McIntosh's men were moving to the west of the position held by Colonel Bussey, the Indian regiments of Brigadier General Albert Pike were moving on McIntosh's left 
and behind a rail fence that ran east and west along the north side of the field in which the three Federal guns were located, slightly west of an eminence called Little Round Top. And not that Little Round Top, another little. You can see it, it's identified here as Little Mountain. Just above Leetown, it just says Little MT, Little Mountain. As McIntosh and Pike's men were moving forward and charging the Federal battery with a wild rebel yell, Colonel Bussey was endeavoring to get the 5th Union Missouri Cavalry to move forward and break up the Southern attack. <coughs> the members of the 5th Missouri refused to obey their commander. <coughs> Consequently, the 4th Missouri Cavalry Union was pushed back and the three guns of the flying battery were captured by Pike's and McIntosh's men, with the gun carriages then being burned by the Confederates. While the, con while the carriages were being burned, the gunpowder in one of the cannon tubes exploded, killing several of the Indians. Prior to the routing of the 4th Missouri and the refusal of the 5th Missouri to move forward, Osterhaus had ordered Captain Wellfley to advance three of his 12-pounder howitzers to support the advanced cavalry. As Wellfley's men were moving forward, they became involved in the confusion caused by the retreat of Bussey's troops, and during that confusion, one of the guns had to be abandoned. Shortly, however, the gun was recaptured when Osterhaus's force was successful in pushing the Confederates back into the woods on the north side of the field. This was a very close, hard-fought battle, moving back and forth and back and forth over the same ground. The Federals would capture it for a while, and then the Confederates would charge, and the Federals would retreat, and then the Federals would charge, and the Confederates would retreat, and there was just a lot of hand-to-hand -hand fighting going on over the same relatively small area of ground. Confusion was not confined to the Federal forces. For some 20 minutes after Pike's Indians had participated in the successful routing of the Federals and the capture of the three guns, they milled excitedly around the guns, talking and riding this way and that, listening to orders from no one. When several shells from the Federal guns of the 4th Ohio and Wellfleet's batteries landed among the Indians, they ran into the woods where they felt more comfortable. They were not accustomed to fighting against wagons that shoot, as they call them and they decided that they'd stay in the woods, which they did the remainder of the day, and they took part in no more charges. Right, smart Indians. <laughs> While Pike was concerned with his Indians, McCulloch was leading McIntosh's men, all dismounted except the 6th Texas Cavalry, on Pike's right. McIntosh's men were deployed into line of battle along the north edge of the field opposite Osterhaus's infantry, then made several attempts to cross the field and drive Osterhaus's men from their position behind rail fences, but were unsuccessful. Shortly after two o'clock in the afternoon, McCulloch, conspicuously dressed in a black velvet hat, a black velvet suit, and a plumed hat, moved forward to make a reconnaissance and was slain, reportedly by Peter Pelican. I'm sure all of you Illinoisians have heard of Peter Pelican. Peter Pelican apparently was a French-Canadian who belonged to Company B of the 36th Illinois and who deserted shortly after the battle and was never heard of again. <laughs> McCulloch, McCulloch rode out from the cover of the trees on his horse and a volley was fired. He fell from the horse and several federal troopers jumped up and raced for the body and began stripping the body of its uniform boots, etc., etc. About that time, Confederates came charging out of the woods, and the, Confeder the Confederals dropped their booty for the most part and raced back to the cover of the fence. But Peter Pelican got back to cover with one of two watches that Mac uh, McCulloch had on him at the time. 
And so that's why the honor of killing McCullough has been attributed to Peter Pelican. The honor of looting McCulloch was in fact his, whether he actually <laughs> killed McCulloch or not. McCulloch was hit one time, his horse was hit five times. So six people shot at him and one of them hit him. Uh, like the good soldier that he was, Pelican gave McCulloch's watch to his colonel by the end of the week or something within the next few days. The new commander, McIntosh, General McIntosh, soon met the same fate as McCulloch. These guys didn't have any more sense than to ride out of the woods. <laughs> Seriously, you know, he rode out of the woods and they shot McCulloch and then this somebody else rode out of the woods. I don't think he had on a black velvet suit. That may be why Price and McCulloch didn't get along too well. I, I don't know how I'd feel about a guy that wore a black velvet suit around myself. <laughs> I'd kind of wonder, even if he had been a Texas Ranger. <laughs> After the death of the two Confederate generals, the job of keeping order on Van Dorn's right was most difficult. There was still a ray of hope for the Confederates, however. Colonel Lewis A. Bear's infantry, the Louisiana Tigers, had started moving to the east of Big Mountain prior to the death of the two generals. At first, A. Bear's men became lost and confused in the thick woods, and during this time they were subjected to heavy fire from Federal artillery, but they finally regained their composure and pushed forward, driving Davis's troops, who had just arrived on the scene, before them but their victory was short-lived. Davis managed to send Colonel Thomas Pattison around to the right so that he could attack Hebert from the rear, and Hebert's force could not withstand attacks from two directions and fell apart. Hebert and Colonel M.C. Mitchell of 14th Arkansas were among the Confederate officers captured. So with two generals dead and <coughs> several of the other high-ranking officers captured, there was not much leadership left for the Confederates in the area north of Leetown. At 3 o'clock, Pike, who was admittedly a political general, admittedly not a military man, self-admittedly not a military man, moved to investigate the stillness on his right, only to be informed of the loss of the generals and that he was in command. After surveying the situation, he found he had three regiments and one battalion beside, beside his own troops. Pike decided to take his troops and the 6th Texas and Good's Texas Battery with him to join Van Dorn on the left leaving Colonel Elkanah Greer in command of the remaining cavalry. Colonel Greer withdrew his troops to the Bentonville detour, and at 1 a.m. on the morning of March 8th, he began marching his troops toward Van Dorn's position. On the federal side, the situation at Leetown looked promising. It had been an unquestionable victory for them. It has, as has been noted, the federal right had not fared so well. So we had two battles going on on March 7th. The Confederates won the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern. The Federals won the Battle of Leetown. The Battle of Pea Ridge remained, and there wasn't much left to it. This is in the upper left-hand portion of your map. Much of what happened on the last day of fighting at Pea Ridge was decided by the first day's fighting, the death of the two Confederate generals, McCulloch and McIntosh, the mortal wounding of Slack, the capture of Bear certainly did nothing to help Van Dorn's position, nor did it boost the already low morale of the Confederate troops. During the night, the remnants of McCulloch's and Pike's command joined Van Dorn, but McCulloch's men were not in fighting spirit, and Pike's Indians had already proved themselves to be ineffective in this type of battle. The Confederate situation was worsened by the shortage of ammunition. The supply train for the Confederate forces was held by Brigadier General Martin E. Green at Camp Stevens. That's way back down there to the left across a little Sugar Creek on the Telegraph Road. 
displaced the Federals now between Van Dorn and his supplies. At daylight on March the 8th, Van Dorn, uh, under orders, Green started moving the supply train north toward Van Dorn at Elkhorn Tavern, but he got about a mile from the tavern and he received orders no one knows from whom. They were not written. The courier vanished, you know, nobody knows why, but somebody told the man to take the supply train back to Elm Springs and await further orders, and he did. The sending of Green with the supplies to Elm Springs proved disastrous for Van Dorn. When the Federals opened the Battle of March 8th with tremendous cannon fire, the Confederate batteries would be pushed forward only to be forced back by the depletion of ammunition. The Federals, on the other hand, had replenished their supply of ammunition during the night. During the night, the Federal forces had also concentrated for a showdown. When the fighting started on March the 8th, the Federals were distributed as follows. Immediately to the left of Telegraph Road was White's Brigade with four guns. To his left was the 1st Iowa, then the 4th Ohio, and the command of General Asboth with six guns. To the right of the road were Carr's troops, the 18th Indiana, the 22nd Indiana, the 1st Indiana with three guns, and the 3rd Iowa. The Confederates were distributed in the following manner. Colonel Little, in command at the tavern, had his men at the edge of the timber in the eastern base of Big Mountain. Also west of the Telegraph Road were the 1st Arkansas, the 17th Arkansas, Rosser's Brigade, the 2nd Missouri. On the east were Wade's Battery, the 3rd Missouri, Colonel Colton Green's 3rd Brigade of Missouri Volunteers, Confederate, and the 16th Arkansas. Pike's Indians, those who had not retreated to Camp Stevens, were placed in the hills east and west of Cross Timber Hollow, back to the north of Elkhorn Tavern. At 9 o'clock, Siegel, who had moved his men to a large field west of the tavern and south of Big Mountain, thought Confederate reinforcements were coming to Rosser by way of the southeast slope of Big Mountain. The Federal officer ordered two howitzers of the 2nd Ohio and two guns of Asbos Reserve to be moved forward to prevent any such reinforcement. Before 10 o'clock that morning, Confederate firing had ceased. It was apparent to Van Dorn that he could not hold out any longer against the superior Federal artillery. Although the Confederates had 62 pieces of artillery at Pea Ridge, and the Union had only 49 pieces of artillery. The superior number was worthless without ammunition. Thus, the Confederate commander began withdrawing his troops, first to Williams Hollow, then cutting back southeast to the Huntsville Road. Siegel thought Van Dorn was retreating toward Missouri and moved his troops over Big Mountain to cut off such a retreat, but these were only Confederate stragglers who were captured by Siegel. Before the retreating started, however, Siegel's men did capture the colors and guns of Captain William Hart's Arkansas battery. By 11 o'clock, March 8th, the Battle of Pea Ridge, one of the most decisive engagements west of the Mississippi River, had ended with an overall federal victory. The casualties were high on both sides. Remember, high is a relative term. We hadn't had shallow yet, but for that early in the war, the casualties were high. The Federals suffered 203 killed, 980 wounded, and 201 missing, while the Confederates suffered 1,000 killed and wounded and approximately 300 captured. But Missouri had been saved for the Union. From Pea Ridge, the Confederates would move to Van Buren, Arkansas, and consolidate their forces. They would then move toward Shallow in Tennessee, but would not get there in time for the battle. Some of the Federals remained in the area for almost a month, but most of Curtis's army would move to the vicinity of Batesville, Arkansas. Thus ended the Battle of Pea Ridge. The campaign went on, as uh, Dr. Shea will say in his book, 
to uh, the Mississippi River with the Federals being constantly opposed by Confederate forces but moving constantly forward. Thank you very much. I have to wait till she changes the tape. Oh, change the tape. Just, yeah. just <laughs> and uh, now, as is our custom, we would like to present you with, uh, we might call it today uh, for you, the Van Doren Memorial Trophy. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, this pewter tankard upon which is inscribed, presented to Jerry L. Russell for gallant service, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, March the 10th, 1989. Thank you very much. And now, as also is our custom, we will open it up for uh, any questions that anyone might have. Um, do you have any idea how the uh, Indians were They were not bonneted, as Kurz and Allison would have you believe. Um, there's a, a relatively new book out called Red Fox, which is about Stan Wadey and the Confederate Indians. Uh, quick. Dan Weinberg, who wrote Red Fox? Wilfred? Wilfred, I can't remember Wilfred's last name, but it's, it's a good book. They, they wore what, it, what the rest of the Confederates wore, mostly just civilian clothes and floppy hats and, or plug hats or whatever they wanted to wear. They were not, uh, very few Confederate troops in the Trans-Mississippi were uniformed, and the Indians just wore whatever the rest of them wore. Except for the swarthiness, I suppose you probably couldn't have told them. But. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He and his family call it Whitey. The people in Oklahoma tell me that they call it Whitey, W-A-T-I-E. He was a colonel at that time. He was in charge of one of the two Cherokee regiments there. He was in charge of the mixed blood regiment. Regiment. Colonel John Drew was in charge of the Full Blood Regiment. They did not serve together. They were not friendly. In fact, Drew's Indians later went on to join the Union. Uh, there were about half a dozen Federal soldiers scalped and another dozen perhaps mutilated at the battle during the course of the battle. One adjutant wrote about a scalping that he ran out. A Federal soldier fell in the field and he ran out into the field and he grabbed the guy and he cut out a patch of scalp about the size of a silver dollar. You know, you think of scalping, you think, you know, they're going to take off the whole top of your head, but apparently a, a top knot was sufficient. And he took off a scalp, he, he removed a scalp about the size of a silver dollar and waved it shrieking war hoops or whatever, and the guy who obviously wasn't as bad hurt as he thought he was jumped up and ran off. <laughs> Before the, before the Indian got really serious, he decided he'd leave. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Um, 
that that may very well be true. There's there's a, been a lot said about Pea Ridge being the only battle in which Indians participated, and that's not really true because there was a, a very bloody battle in South Arkansas in the spring of 1864. Ed Bars wrote a book one time called Steele's Retreat from Camden that you may have read about. And there was a battle fought at a place called Poison Spring, and there was a Choctaw regiment on the side of the Confederates there. And they, uh, it was Choctaw regiment uh, uh, was about a third of the of the troops, and there were black troops on the on the Union side, and the Choctaws just slaughtered them. Uh, it was Ed gave a talk one time on Pea Ridge uh, massacre, or I don't remember what the other word was, but anyway, his his assessment of it was that it was a massacre that the Cherokee, I mean, that the Choctaws just ran wild. And Kirby Smith, who was in charge of the Department of Trans-Mississippi, sent them back to the Indian Nation after that battle. He just, he detached that unit and sent them back to the Indian Nation. He rode, he, he rode in with one man he was accompanied by one officer. He he had no staff. The the, uh, I mean this is this is early 1862. They they didn't they didn't really understand command staff functions. Uh, even uh, a month later, not quite a month later, at Shiloh, Albert Sidney Johnston didn't really have a staff in in our concept of the word. Um, Van Dorn. Van Dorn had a massive ego, there's no doubt about it, but I think it was, I think it was as much from, from ignorance of the concept that he didn't have a large and effective staff. Most Civil War generals did not, on either side, did not have large and effective staffs, particularly early in the war. Yeah, you can, because harken back to your childhood and you said, Bobby, you run down there by the car and take a left, and Billy, you run over at the edge of the lot, and I'll throw to you. And that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way they structured battles in those days. Yes, sir. Well, now, you they're not really concentrated because look, McCulloch's clear over here on the left, and Van Dorn and Price are clear over here on the right, and they're pretty scattered out. The, the problem that the Confederates had during the battle was that they weren't concentrated and that they were too spread out, whereas the Federals were, had the interior lines and were able to, to communicate with each other. There was no communication, for instance, on, on March the 7th, there was no communication between Van Dorn and McCulloch. I mean, once, once the once he said, hey, instead of coming around the back of Big Mountain, cut across the front of Big Mountain and attack them down there while we're coming down here, that was it. There was no more communication. No one really knew what the other one was doing. That's right. Neither side knew what the other one was doing. Yes, sir. Um, I would have thought that, you know, at least that there, there might have been some consideration that they were so tired that the Van Dorn didn't do anything right in the conduct of this battle. 
uh, Samuel Curtis, who is a general that somebody ought to write a biography of because he was really an effective general, didn't do anything wrong. Uh, that had to do with the outcome of the battle. I think you're exactly right. But, but Van Dorn got there and, you know, boy, he wanted to get with the program. He wanted to move on out, uh, which tends to give some credence to the, to the Trump story. Uh, another interesting sidelight is that when, when uh, it was announced to some of McCulloch's troops that he had been killed, cheers went up. <laughs> they had problems with the velvet suit, too. No, he, he was a very strict disciplinarian, and he was not well-liked by his men. So, so the, the, whole, uh, the whole morale factor of the Confederate troops had to be bad for the reasons that you mentioned, they hadn't any food, they'd been marching in the snow, and, you know, hey, fellas, can't we wait a couple of days? And But uh, I, I don't know, maybe Van Dorn was like Custer and was afraid all those guys would get away. He was, he was like Meade was to Grant going down into Virginia. I mean, he was there, but Van Dorn was running things. However, that's probably just as well. I, I really got in trouble speaking to the Kansas City Roundtable one night, telling them how bad Pat Price was as a general. Gosh, you talk about, I mean, it'd, it'd be like saying something bad about Chimelfinnick or something. <laughs> Missouri, Missouri folks really think highly of Pat Price, but Price played, played practically no role in this battle. Interestingly, Curtis won two Civil War battles. He beat Price, if you will, at Pea Ridge, and he beat Price at West Fort Landing. So he was 2-0 and o against old Pat. Yes, sir. Oh, I think Carr did a good job. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think any, even Siegel, I don't think any of the Union commanders can be faulted in this battle. I think the Union commanders did a good job in this battle. And I think the Confederate commanders, Dorn did a poor job, and the rest of the fellows just kind of wandered around until they got killed or something. <laughs> can, in closing, can I share my favorite story, which some of you have heard before? Anytime you talk about the Civil War, you give your opinion of things from your own perspective, from your own viewpoint. And I like to illustrate that with a story about a young Confederate soldier late in the war in the early spring of 1865, just before it was over, was captured in the valley by some of Sheridan's well-fed, well-dressed, hard-riding troopers. And this kid was about 14, and he, he didn't have a uniform. He just had bits and pieces of ragged clothing. His musket was broken. He didn't have any shoes. And they took him in before the provo marshal. And this fat Yankee major reared back in the chair and said, what do you got to say for yourself, Reb? And the boy looked the major in the eye and said, Major, I'll tell you one thing. If there had been more of us Confederates, we'd have whipped your Yankee butt. Well, the major didn't like that much. He took grave offense, and he said, let me tell you something, son. If you don't sign an oath of allegiance to the Federal Union, we're going to walk you out here in the front yard, and we're going to shoot you right there in front of that tree. Well, having had it explained to him that way, the boy allowed us out. He'd signed the oath of allegiance to the Federal Union, and he did. And the major reared back one more time and said, what are you going to say now, son? 
And the boy said, Major, I'll tell you something. If there'd been more of them Confederates, it'd have whipped our Yankee butt. <laughs> Thank you very much.